Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Zechariah, towards the end of your Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 9 this morning. I've had a couple weeks off from preaching. I appreciate Tim Beavis coming to speak with us two weeks ago. Reminding us of great truths that we needed to hear. Appreciate uh, Eric preaching for me last week uh, with uh, worship through giving. And sometimes after a couple weeks off, I think to myself, do I know what I'm doing? Uh, but Lord willing, it'll be just like a bicycle. Keep pedaling, keep pedaling, right? Get back on and, and do it again. We're thankful for God's word he's given to us. So if you're there, Zechariah chapter 9. Would you stand with me? I'm going to read verses 9 through 17. Zechariah 9 through 17. After I read verse 17, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God, because we are thankful for His holy word. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land." For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
Father, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And what we are not, make us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Pick up your room. Take out the trash. Turn off the TV. Be quiet. Settle down. Sit still. Stop that. These are common commands that you would hear among many families. Commands are a part of life. You're telling someone to either do something or to stop doing something. Many people think of the Bible as a book of commands. For many, the Bible could just be a list of do's and don'ts. They see it merely as a lot of rules that you have to follow or obey. What happens when you give a command or someone else gives a command? What's happening? You are wanting and desiring to have the world conform to your language. So I say something out of my mouth, and then I want to see the world conform to what I just said. I want to see some action. I want to see something happen. So I give a command in my home, and I expect the world, at least within my home, to conform to my language. What I say, I want to see happen. Maybe you could take time to think about all the commands you say in any given week. But I'm willing to go out on a limb here and make a guess. There might be one command you've never given to anyone. It's one command that I don't know if I've ever told my children Neither do I recount anyone ever saying this command to me. What is the command? Rejoice. Have you ever said or heard someone say, I command you to rejoice? Why don't we think more about that word rejoice as a command? Maybe we think we cannot command joy or rejoicing. If there is cause for rejoicing, then we rejoice. If there is no cause for rejoicing, then we do not rejoice. You can't command me to rejoice. If I don't feel like rejoicing, you can't make me rejoice. I can't just conjure up joy in an instant and rejoice but what if God commands you to rejoice? Then what do you do? I'll tell you one thing. You better rejoice. <laughs> but with God, when He gives the command to rejoice, it follows 
that He has given us every reason to rejoice. What the Lord commands you to do, He supplies every reason and every motivation for you to do it. Why is it then that sometimes we refuse to rejoice? Why is it sometimes that rejoicing seems so difficult and so hard? When God commands us to rejoice and we fail to rejoice, the problem is not with God. The problem is with us. It's with our own hard, impenitent, impenetrable lives and hearts that are either unwilling or so distracted or so lazy as to let the joy of the Lord into our lives that then we rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Double command. Yet this is where our verses start this morning. Rejoice greatly shout aloud. This is a public, noisy display of joy among the chosen people of God. Why? Why this rejoicing? Why this command? Rejoice greatly, not just a little bit, not reluctantly, not hesitantly. Rejoice greatly and shout aloud. Why? Behold, look, see, your king is coming to you. Rejoice because God has given you what you need. Rejoice because of God's abundant provision in your life. But what is it here? What is it that Zechariah is telling us and the Lord is telling us that we need? It is saying to us, you need a king. How do you react to such a thought? Do I really need a king? Maybe I can get by without a king. Maybe a king is just optional. Maybe to have a king would be a nice extra benefit. Or maybe you even have the opposite reaction. Who needs a king? Surely not me. Kings are authoritarian, they are vicious, they are manipulative and only look out for themselves and elevate their own power and prestige over people upon whom they trample and oppress. A king, no thanks, I don't need a king. And if we were to look in the vast majority of history, that's precisely what we would find. It's difficult to find a good king in the pages of history. Sometimes in the Bible, it's also difficult to find a good king. If you read about all the kings of Israel and Judah, not all of them are good. Maybe we can do without a king. But the Bible declares that disaster will ensue without a king. The very last verse of the book of Judges, it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is a most 
important and significant verse regarding our understanding of human nature. So there are some Bible verses that screamed to us about our own nature, about our, our own human nature. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who do, does good. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? All verses that tell us about our own human nature. But here, this verse, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Why? Because there was no king. What happens when there's no king? Subjective morality. You get to decide what's right. You get to decide what's good. If it feels like it, do it. feels good, do it. You determine what is right and wrong, what is good or bad, what is true or false. Without a king, man has no moral compass. And what's even worse, I think, is that without a king, we deceive ourselves to think that we have escaped the oppressive and cruel kings of this world when in fact we become little Tyrannosaurus Rexes. And maybe the Apostle Paul knew this. You think of a Tyrannosaurus Rex, the images that you've seen drawn or depicted, vicious, bloodthirsty, meat eater. I think the Apostle Paul knew this when he tells Christians, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Your little Tyrannosaurus Rex wants to come out and it wants to bite and it wants to devour. It's bloodthirsty. It's hungry. It will stop at nothing to get its own way. And if you let that little Rex rule, guess what? You're going to devour and consume one another. We become our own tyrant king. And life, miserable. When we become our own king, we end up terrorizing others and even our own selves. The solution isn't to jettison the idea of a king or to escape the authority of a king. It is having the right king in place. We need a king. The question is, what kind of king do we need? And good news, Zechariah chapter 9 tells us what kind of king we need. Zechariah, if you were to read the whole book, you would find that it is fairly apocalyptic in its writings. Apocalyptic literature, books like the book of Revelation, books like portions of Daniel are this apocalyptic literature. Zechariah falls into that. He has some visions. These visions are interpreted to him by angels telling him of the things that will take place. And here in the middle of this book, we find it revolve around this king. And so Zechariah describes the beauty of this king for us. So let's take a few moments and talk about who this king is.
this king that we need. If you can follow along in your bulletin, if you find that helpful, that, those are on the, in your bulletin there. But number one, we need a king who is humble yet victorious. We need a king who is humble yet victorious. Humble yet victorious. The very first action, you find that there in the middle of verse 9, behold, your king is coming to you. This is an action. It's communicating something to us. Look at this. This is a personal king. This is your king, the king who is yours, the king who you know, the king who you love. This is not some far off distant king who sits somewhere in an ivory tower or hides behind a velvet curtain. This is your king. He is king who is ruling on your behalf, for you, for your benefit. He's watching out for you. He cares about you. He has invested interest in your life. He's not a king who abandons you. He is a king who comes to you. How different than the worldly kings. The worldly kings, we come before them. We try to gain access to them. We want to come into their presence. We hope that we would be worthy enough to find an audience with earthly kings, but not with this king. This king comes to us. He is moving to us. Why is this action significant? Why is it significant that this king is coming to us? Because if this king is coming to us, it's because he's gone out from us for a time. He's gone out from us in battle. He's gone out from us because there were enemies that were threatening us. In fact, if you read the first half of Zechariah chapter 9, there it describes those enemies that will be defeated. Now, this king has gone out, he's fought the battle, he's won the war, and he's coming back to the people. He's coming back to Jerusalem. He's coming back to the people he has fought for, coming back to the kingdom he has defended. He's not coming back with his tail between his legs. He is not coming back in defeat. He is coming back as the victorious king. The king is coming to you as the conquering king. This king has won. This king is victorious. Rejoice. He has defeated your enemies. He has triumphed over all your foes. He has brought to nothing those who were breathing out threats against you. He has brought stability and security in the face of evil and wickedness. He is the righteous king. That is, he is the just king. He is completely good. You can always trust him to rule with righteousness and with truth. Those are the very foundations of his throne. He is also having salvation. Not only does he know salvation, but he possesses it in that he gives it to his subjects. He gives it to those that he has fought for. He has been saved in the midst of battle, and now he's coming back and he's giving this salvation to his subjects, giving this salvation to those who are his. But now the contrast, a victorious king, yes, 
but a humble king. The word here, humble, could also be translated lowly. Or even the word afflicted. In fact, Isaiah 53 uses this word, afflicted, to talk about the suffering servant. Same word that's used here. This is the afflicted king. Humble king, lowly king. It should be good news to hear that we have a humble, lowly, afflicted king because this is a king who is not disconnected from his people. This is a king who was able to sympathize with the people because he himself was acquainted with grief. He knows what it is to be afflicted. He knows what it is to be a man of sorrows. A humble king is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and our infirmities. A humble king is the only way we can have a comforting, consoling, and compassionate king. And he's riding on a donkey. Specifically here, a male donkey, a colt, it's called. Not only is a donkey a sign of poverty, it's a sign of service, it's also a sign of peace. How different. This king is not riding into Jerusalem seated on a white war horse. This is the humble, lowly, afflicted king riding in on a donkey. Zechariah is telling us something. This king is a Davidic king. If you go back to Genesis chapter 41 or 49, Genesis 49, verse 11, or verse 10, Jacob is blessing his sons. He's blessing specifically Judah in verses 10 and 11. It says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Here is this king that's going to come from Judah. The scepter shall not depart from him. The ruler's staff will be between his feet. And what does this king have? He has a donkey. He has a foal that's bound to the vine. In fact, you can even look at places like 2 Samuel 16.2 or 1 Kings 3, and you can find there that David was given donkeys, or, or Solomon came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And so Zechariah is saying, this king is not just any king, this king is a Davidic king. Even as Jeremiah 23 describes, Jeremiah 23, verse 5, says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Here it is, the righteous king, the righteous Davidic king, the offspring of David, who is the Messiah. This is the humble yet victorious king. Number two, he, we need a king who establishes peace through his sovereign rule. We need a king who establishes peace through his sovereign rule. 
This is what you see next in Zechariah, a king who brings unifying peace. Notice first, it's peace even among the people of God. So verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. Ephraim representing the northern kingdom. Jerusalem representing the southern kingdom. What happens? Now these two kingdoms, these kingdoms that were once torn apart, these kingdoms that were once split after Solomon's rule and reign, come together again. There's no more chariot. There's no more war horse. The conventional tools of battle are done away with. And what does this king do? He speaks peace to the nations. So many nations. How do you get all of the nations to be on the same page? People have been trying for years and decades and centuries. How do you get all of the nations on the same page? With all of their own interests, with all of their own aspirations for greatness, with all of their desires to rule themselves, you give them a king whose sovereign rule brings universal peace. There is now a new order, not an order of chaos, not rampant wickedness that rules the day. No longer do these nations rage and plot in vain against this king. The king has come and brought peace. He has dominion over everything. This king accomplishes what the first Adam failed to do. He has given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. This is the greatest rule that has ever been known because it is his sovereign rule over everything. From the river to the ends of the earth, there is nowhere this, rule, this king's rule does not reach. There is nowhere that you can go to get out of this king's rule. Think about that. To live under this king's rule is to know peace. If you are trying to live outside of his rule, guess what? No peace. Is there ever a disquieting in your heart? Is there ever a lack of peace in your soul? Do you ever go back to the sovereignty of this king and say, is this king sovereign? Is this king in control? Does this king have my best interest in mind? Does this king really love me? Is this king really for me? When you know that king, then you know peace. Then you have assurance. Then you have hope. Number three, we need a king who secures the hope of our redemption. We need a king who secures the hope of our redemption. As we work our way through this passage... The good news just keeps getting better and better and better. Look at what this king does now. Verse 11, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So here is this covenant, this relationship 
relationship between God and his people, a relationship that is built upon blood, that's been sealed by blood of sacrifice. And when this relationship is so confirmed and so established, prisoners are set free from the waterless pits. Just to take you through this here for a second, waterless pit is this idea of of exile, but it's also this picture of death. There's nothing in a waterless pit. It's not sustainable. It's a wasteland. It's dead. There's nothing there. And in fact, God's Word has a theology of pits. Did you know that? So, back in Genesis, you remember Joseph and his brothers. Joseph has these dreams when his brothers are going to bow down before him, and even his own parents are going to bow down before him. And His brothers don't like this too much. They don't like the favoritism that their father has shown him by giving him a coat of many colors. And so they say, here comes this dreamer. What should we do with him? Well, here's a pit. Let's throw him in the pit. And that's what they do. And you know what it says there? It says it was a pit without water. It was a waterless pit. So they found this pit without water. They throw him in the pit. Then he sold into Egypt. Sold to the Ishmaelites. Take him to Egypt. Joseph's life is forever changed. Joseph, because of his faithfulness, rises up through the ranks, however, of those in Egypt. He's this man, Potiphar's right-hand man, has great power and authority in this household of Potiphar, but Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, tries to lie with him. He runs away. Yet he is framed for his righteousness. and He's thrown again into another pit, to a dungeon, to a prison. Until finally he's taken out of that pit and established as Pharaoh's right-hand man later on. Another man named Jeremiah was thrown into a pit, another waterless pit. In fact, it's called a cistern, right? cistern collects water. Jeremiah was thrown into this pit. It didn't have water in it, but it did have mud in it, and Jeremiah sank in the mud until they go and they save Jeremiah. Jeremiah has been in there so long without any food, without any water. He's weak and helpless. He's sunk in the mud. It's like his body is decaying. So much so that they have to throw rags down to him to pull him out. And he can't grab onto the rags. He has to tie the rags around his, around his chest so they can pull him out. Because perhaps if they used his arms, they might pull off his arms. He's so weak and helpless. Here are these people. They were thrown in these pits which represent death destruction, yet what happened? They were redeemed from the pit. They were brought out of the pit. They were saved from the pit. And now in these verses, it says that you will be set free from the pit, set free from the pit of death, saved from destruction. 
This is good news, brother and sister. Do you ever feel like you're in the pit? You ever feel like you're weak and helpless? Do you ever feel like the mud is closing in around your body and sucking all of the life out of you? The good news is, is that there are those who can be set free from death. And then I love what it says in verse 12. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Look what's happened. You were once prisoners of a waterless pit, but now you've been chained. Now you've been transformed. Now you are prisoners of hope. Now you are shackled to hope. Once you were not able to escape the pit, but by God's grace and mercy, you've escaped that pit, and now you cannot escape God's hope. Nor should you want to escape God's hope. But what about those days when you feel like there is no hope? Would you go here and say, no, no, no. If I follow this king, I am a prisoner of hope. I have a stronghold that I can run to. I have someone who will care for me. I have a future. And look at what it says. I will restore to you double. Job was a man who had just about everything taken away from him in the Bible. And he wrestled with God. And in the end, of all of Job's suffering and all of Job's wrestling, God restored to him double what he had before. This is what God does for his people. There is an inheritance. There is a portion that is double, that is more, that is twice as much as before. In fact, Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 7, say this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. The poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to what? Proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then look at verse 7. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. That is the good news of the gospel. Everlasting joy is a double portion that God gives to his people. Finally, number four, we need a king who saves his people to the praise of his glory. We need a king who saves his people to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, you have this presence of the Lord among his people. The Lord will appear over them. His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. So what is this? This is the presence of the Lord among his people. This is what the king does. The king brings the presence of the Lord into or to his people. This is the Lord that we know from Mount Sinai. 
This is the, the Lord that we know from, from the Mount of Transfiguration. This is the Lord that we know from the second coming of Christ when what? The trumpet will sound. Why? Because the presence of the Lord is coming. And look at what it says in verse 16. On that day, the Lord their God will save them. This is that word, Hosanna. The Lord their God will save them. He will rescue them as a great shepherd rescues his flock. So the Lord will rescue his people. He will care for them. He will come to them and tend to them as a shepherd cares for his lambs. Why does he do all of this? Because the people, look at what it says here, but the people are like jewels of a crown. This is the promise that, that God made to his people back in Exodus 19. You will be my treasured possession. Here they are, jewels of a crown, his treasured possession. The people that he loves. And what are they going to do? They are going to shine on his land. They are going to sparkle. They are going to glitter. These people who are like jewels in a crown are going to shine forth the very glory of this Lord. And what are they going to do? They're going to make known his goodness and his beauty. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. How do you know the goodness of the Lord? How do you know the beauty of the Lord? It's through the shining of his people that he has saved, that he has rescued, that he has redeemed, that he has glorified. And this is the new creation. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young woman. It's like a new promised land. It's like a new Eden. It's a new creation where all of this is happening. A new land where God's rule and God's reign is taking place over God's people in a new heavens and new earth. There's been one thing I haven't said yet. And I hope you're dying to hear it. Who is this king of glory? This is King Jesus Christ. This is the king who came riding in Jerusalem on a donkey, enacting Zechariah 9, saying, I am this king. I am the king who is righteous and just and sinless. I am the king who has salvation. I am the king who will be afflicted for your sin. I am the king who will be acquainted with grief. I am the king who will sympathize with you in all of your weaknesses. I am the king who will bring you peace for I am the Prince of Peace. I am the King who will establish the covenant between you and God. And guess how I'm going to do it? This is what Jesus does. Look at it here. Zechariah 9, verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. You know what Jesus does when he comes? He says, this is the blood of 
This is my blood of the new covenant. This is not just anybody's blood. This is not the blood of animals or bulls or goats. This is my blood that is the blood of the new covenant that establishes and seals and solidifies your relationship with God because I've reconciled you to God. He is the one who sets us free from our sin and from death. He is the one who makes us prisoners of hope. He is the one who gives us his joy. He is the one who is our great shepherd. He is the one who calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He is the one who transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And when did Jesus take this action of riding into Jerusalem? He did it before he died. Think about that for a moment. Jesus, the humble yet victorious king, the king who establishes peace by his rule, the king who secures our hope through his redemption, our king who saves us to his own glory, he takes this action before he even goes to the cross. What's he saying? It's as good as done. It's so certain that I'm going to take this action as king now, even before I die even before I rise again from the dead, it's as good as done. I'm doing it now. I am your king. And the people are rejoicing. And they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying, yes, king, come, rule, reign, save, do everything. And what happens a week later? Oh, fickle people, you who once were praising your king are now saying what? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And what does Pilate do? Pilate scourges him, beats him, and he brings him out before all of the people and Pilate says, Behold your king. Rejoice. Rejoice. Let's pray. Father, have your way with us today. That we might rejoice. Forgive us for when we don't rejoice as we should. Help us to behold our King again afresh today. Help us to shine 
even now as his treasured possession. That his goodness and his beauty might be put on display for the whole world to see. May we shine brightly today, but may we even look forward to that day when we will shine anew in Emmanuel's land forever and ever and ever. Oh God, thank you for this king. And let us say, we need, we desperately need this king. We pray this in his name. Amen.